Thank you for downloading this sermon from Christ the Word Church. If you would like more information on how Christ the Word is reaching, raising, and teaching generations in Northwest Ohio and Southeast Michigan, please visit us online at ChristTheWord.com. Well, congratulations to the McClavick family for this epic win. If you, in case you think that's a, a put-on job, that photo, that let me just tell you from personal experience, when you get around the McClavicks in their home, when they don't think people are around, that is pretty much exactly what you find, all right? It's not, that's just the character of that home. Ask me sometime about the first time I stopped by their house in the evening about what I found, all right? I won't do it right now, but that's the reality of their, of their life. Hey, a few things beyond the announcements. One, I, I announced last week that we are, that we are thinking about what we do in terms of resuming activity. We are dependent in, in this to, on decisions that go beyond our ability to influence and affect. But um, given the, the nature of the, the restrictions that have been put on churches thus far, we have established a committee to think about this. And uh, the elders did that this past Monday evening in a video meeting. That committee has uh, Pastor Nathan on it, and then three others, uh, Dr. Wing, who is chairing the committee, uh, Dr. Pollock, who is also an ER doctor, who is a member of the committee, and Dr. Forney, who will be on it as well. And so these four men are going to be thinking about the future, how we're going to do things. But I wanna say that in their actions, they're representing the elder board, and, and I represent the elder board for you, and if, if you have questions or concerns, really come to me. Um, I'm willing to talk to you. We've established this group, and I, I want them to be able to do their work with, um, with the freedom to act in the way that they think best. And so, I'm, in a sense, I'm, I'm wanting to be a shield for them, and I also recognize that, that I'm responsible in the end to God for the decisions and the things that we do so be praying for them, be praying for us as elders, pray for me, and we'll see what God does. Um, we mentioned that there was one event that was canceled in June thus far. Now with the, the stay-at-home order sticking through at least the 28th of May as we understand it, it, it became evident to me, and this is my decision in the end, that the, the, the graduation of the pastor's college that was planned for June 6th cannot go ahead, in part because I want this to be an evening, a service of rejoicing and celebrating what God has done. And to do this without the congregation there or to do it with some kind of imposed uh, stringent um, requirements on not being together or not, not sitting near each other is something I don't wanna do. And so we're putting it back into the summer. It may actually be held the beginning of the fall we don't know. We're looking forward, though, to this graduation, and we're pleased with God in his mercy, giving us these graduates and leading other men into the pastor's college. Now, let's turn to the word of God, and our passage is, I think, the shortest one we're going to do in the whole book of Matthew. Maybe not, but um, I don't think that thus far we have, we have spent our time on one verse, which is what we're going to do this morning, and that verse was the concluding verse of our of our time together in God's word last Sunday. 
It's Matthew 7, verse 6. Will you stand for the reading of God's word? And you have it before you there, so I'd ask you to repeat along with me. It's short. We can do it in unison. Matthew 7, 6. Do not give what is holy to dogs, and do not throw your pearls before swine, or they will trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. The word of the Lord. Amen. You may be seated. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus and the glory of his words and his life. They merge, Father. They're one. And so we pray that as we listen to Jesus, as we look at his word, that by his spirit we may have understanding, that by his spirit we may obey, that we may be transformed by his word. Even now, Father, some of us having been Christians for decades, others of us new Christians, transform us all and bring us into conformity with what Jesus teaches here. And I pray, Father, that there will be glory in the church and in the world as we obey Jesus in this verse. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now, Calvin, the great leader of the Reformation and the great commenter on Scripture, says of this verse, it is unnecessary to repeat more often than he already does, and you'd have to have read him to know how often he repeats it, and he does repeat it often, that Matthew gives us here detached sentences. In other words, that the Sermon on the Mount is not a unitary whole, but it is a a collection of, of sentences from throughout the sermons of Jesus, brought together, collated by an editor, which is Matthew. This present instruction is not at all connected with what came immediately before Calvin says, but entirely separate from it. Christ reminds the apostles and through them all the teachers of the gospel to reserve the treasure of heavenly wisdom for the children of God alone and not to expose it to unworthy and profane despisers of his word. Well, (laughs) it's not often that I'm going to say I think Calvin is dead wrong, but I think he's dead wrong on this one. I think that he's, he's, he's misjudged the, the introduction and the conclusion of the sermon that presented as something that was preached on one occasion to one group of people and he's, he, has, he has not paid attention to that. Nor I think is he recognizing, and this is something that's a little stronger of a charge but I, and it's something I would rarely say about that great, that great man and that great that great speaker and teacher on the word of God, but I don't think he's, he's actually recognizing the true flow. In other words, he's just read the portion. He's just commented on the portion of the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says, do not judge lest you be judged for with the measure that you judge, so you shall be judged. Do, you, do not, you know, where, where he's giving these warnings about judging. Do not try and take the, the speck out of your neighbor's eye instead get the log out of yours and he's saying wow you know now he says do not give what is holy to dogs and he's requiring judgment certainly these were two different sermons well let me say that um, I think they're very connected and that the warning of the previous verses about not judging and and how we are to judge is very apropos (laughs) very much connected to this verse In other words, the previous verses did not condemn or forbid all judgment, but in fact told us how we're to judge, ways that we're to judge and ways we're not. 
and that now we come to a verse which commands judgment. And in fact, the remainder of the chapter is all about judgment, making right judgments, because God is a judge. And it, it emphasizes the remainder of the sermon that God is a judge, that he's going to judge, that you'd better build your house on the rock, not on sand, because there's coming a storm and it's gonna knock down every house that's not built on the rock, the word of God. That Jesus will one day be be in heaven and all the peoples gathered before him and many people will say to him on that day, Lord, Lord, didn't we do miracles in your name? Didn't we do these things? And he will say to them, away from me, I never knew you. And there will be judgment. God is judging and so we must judge in accord with God's judgment. This is, this is the point here. So even if Calvin misses that the predominance of judgment the theme of judgment that consumes the final portion of this sermon, we would have to say that the Holy Spirit, even if these were segments from other sermons, that the Holy Spirit inspired Matthew to bring them together here, and thus there is an integrity to it. There is a, it is a unitary whole, even if it did come from various sermons, because the Holy Spirit inspired it and brought it together. And so whether Jesus did it or not, the Holy Spirit did it, and the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of God. And so we are to take these and understand them as connected. I think that it's essential that we do that. Now the point here, <laughs> very obviously, is not that you are never to judge and not that I am never to judge. In fact, as we said last week, judgment is required throughout the Word of God. Judgment is to be done righteously, Jesus warns the Pharisees, he says to them, don't judge with unrighteous judgment. Don't judge according to appearances. Judge righteously. And that is a command to judge and a command not to judge in certain ways. This is what we find here. And the point is not that we are never to judge. Far from calling us never to discern, never to make distinctions, the kinds of things that judgment requires in these final verses of his sermon. In the last third, what Jesus does is to go on a, a protracted plea to his people, to his, to his disciples, those who will follow him, to make judgments, to judge in a godly way, to understand, the, the, to discern truth. Far from being a, a command never to judge, what Jesus is saying here is judge, judge rightly, judge charitably, Judge under God's judgment as one who will be judged, but judge, discern things, look outside and understand the times. At one point Jesus says, you know, sailors can look and see the sky at night and understand what's coming in the morning. Why do you not understand what's coming? In other words, why do you not make judgments? We make judgments every day. We look at the sky and we say, you know, it's gonna rain. I don't think I'm gonna put down the, the Roundup because if I put the Roundup down on the weeds it's, and, the, and it rains, it's gonna be washed away and it's a judgment we make. We make judgments about whether this guy's driving well. We think as we come up to the intersection, you know, it's a, it's a kid in an old beater car. You know, I'm gonna be a little careful here. You're constantly discerning and making judgments. Never does the word of God call us to to put aside judgment when it comes to the things of God, never. Never does it say, don't judge in this area, don't discern, don't understand who the false prophets are, and he warns about false prophets in the verses to come. Instead, Jesus is constantly urging judgment on us, but in accord with righteous judgment, not sinful judgment. Here, the command is to judge and practice discernment with what is holy, 
in distributing the treasure that we've been given, do not give what is holy to dogs. Do not throw our pearls before swine. What is Jesus speaking of here? What is the holy that we're not to give to dogs? What is the pearl that we are not to, to cast before the swine? Who are the dogs? Who are the swine? How do we recognize the dogs and the swine? It's not just a question of what is the holy and what is the pearl, but it's the question of, of who are we to judge? Where are we to understand there to be swines and dogs? Now, Jesus elsewhere, and I think that we can take this as, as, as being a, a, a large clue to what the pearl is. He, elsewhere, Jesus refers to the kingdom of heaven and he calls it a, a pearl of great value. Only twice does Jesus in the Gospels refer to something as a pearl, refer to pearls. Once here, once in Matthew chapter 13 when he says the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls and he found a pearl of inestimable value, of, of, of a, a treasure. And so he sold all he had and he went and he, he bought that one pearl of, of great value, the great treasure. And he says the kingdom of heaven is like this. You're to be looking and you'll see pearls and you'll see pearls, but then you'll see a pearl. And there are these lesser pearls, there are these lesser things, but then there's the great pearl. It's discernment. Understand that this is the treasure and sell everything and make a judgment about everything else. Say, I, you know, everything else I have is nothing. This pearl is everything. That's the kingdom of God. Jesus also speaks of holy here. He says, don't give what is holy to dogs. Don't, even as he says, don't throw your pearls before swine. And it's clear, I think, that the holy things and the pearl are the same. The pearl is precious precisely because it is holy. It's from God. It's, it's distinct from everything else. It's, it's a thing of God. And we're not to let it be scorned or trampled. And we're not to throw it to swine. Now, let me, let me begin by saying that at first glance, it may seem, and it may actually seem kind of something we like to hear if we're not thinking right. It may seem that Jesus is warning us that we shouldn't carry the gospel to those who are unworthy. Do not subject the power of the holy and precious gospel to scornful men and women to violent men, to profaners, to the blasphemers, to the adulterers. <laughs> Imagine how much sorrow and shame and difficulty in your life could be prevented if this were actually Jesus' meaning. It would be such a helpful command, wouldn't it? You know, ignore the people in the bar down the road. Ignore the, 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 the women of loose virtue and the men who are adulterers. Ignore them. They're dogs. They're they're evil men, don't, don't throw your pearls before them. It would be very nice to be able to do that because honestly when we go before, before the world with the gospel of Jesus, very often we are the ones who get hit, not the gospel, we get struck. And that's warning of the verse, it says, you know, not only will you be casting what's valuable down, but the, the dogs, the pigs will turn on you and trample you and tear you to pieces as well. And, that's very often what it feels like when we go to people. They don't attack the message we bring, they attack the messenger. 
They don't like the message and so they come after us and they ridicule us, they mock us. At times, if, if you're really carrying the message, you may be fired because of it. Your family turns on you. And so the, it could be that you look at this and you say, well, that's my problem. It's not their problem. I shouldn't have been giving them the word of God. I shouldn't have been casting my pearls before these swine. And immediately, if you take it in this way, it becomes, it becomes your fault that you should not be going to people who won't accept what you say. And so your judgment is to find those who will accept, and yet that is simply impossible. You don't know who's going to accept. And the Bible calls you to go to all men with, with this treasure, the gospel. So it can't be the gospel. It can't be the message of Christ that we're not to distribute freely. Now, in a certain sense, after a certain amount of time, by their reaction to it, some men may demonstrate that they're swine, some women that they're, they're dogs, and, and at that point there is a command here for us that we should stop and back away. But initially, it's not our judgment. We're not allowed to say, oh, I think that's a dog. I'm not going to go to that person because they're a dog. And we don't want to go to them. Jesus, at one point, was approached by a Gentile woman, Syrophoenician woman. She said, I want you to heal my daughter. And Jesus did not respond immediately. And she kept persevering. And finally, he turned to her and he said, it's not right that the food for the children should be fed to the dogs. That was a common Jewish way of speaking to the Gentiles, Gentile dogs. Jesus said, it's not right that the children's food be given to the dogs. And yet the woman looked at Jesus and she responded, yes, but even the dogs get to eat the crumbs that fall off the children's table. And Jesus said, woman, your, your faith is great. Go, your daughter has been done as you, it has been done to your daughter as you asked. And so Jesus called her, in a sense, a dog and said, why should I give it to you? And then he gave it to her. So it's not a simple thing here to say we don't go to people. In fact, if we understand the gospel and us, who you are, who I am, who we were, we have to recognize that God came to us while we were sinners. The Bible says we were enemies of God. That we were once enemies of God, the Bible says we were strangers to grace, foreigners to the kingdom of Christ. Paul writes to the Ephesians and says, therefore remember, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that it, you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenant of promise, without hope and without God in the world. Enemies of God, dogs and swine. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So we were once alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds. We were once formerly darkness, 
We formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Are you not glad that God caused this precious pearl to go to a swine in you, in me? Are you not glad that God allowed his son, his precious son, to be beaten and, and torn by the dogs, including you and me? Because we were among those who caused his death. We were there. It was our sin. The Bible says they will look on him whom they have killed and they will mourn for him. The one who bore our stripes one day, we're going to look at him and we're going to understand that he died not for everyone else, but for us. This has to be part of our understanding as we approach this word. There are some false conclusions that we might come to as we read this passage, and I want to mention some of them. First, it is a false conclusion on the basis of this to refuse to witness to people because you think they're bad. It just simply is, is not allowed. And Paul witnessed everywhere he went. Now, he did obey the command here, and I'll come to that. But wherever he went, whether it was high or low, whether it was kings or commoners, he witnessed to everyone, everywhere, all the time. It's not ours to choose who belongs to God, where the seed will fall. Remember the story that Jesus gives of the, of the sower and the seed, the parable he told. The sower goes out, he says, the kingdom of heaven is like this. A sower goes out and he goes to sow seed. And he so throws some and it lands on the path and, and there it's trampled. Same word that he uses here, trampled. Gets trampled on the path. Some falls on, on rocky ground, it, it spurts up and then it, the heat of the day comes, trials, troubles, and it, it falls away, it dies. Some falls, it says, on, on weed-infested ground, it, it flourishes, but then the weeds take over and it it's rendered unfruitful. It never really bears fruit. It doesn't die, it stays there. And that's the distinction about that third group rather than the second is that the second one ultimately dies. Third one stays there, it's in the church. This is something we need to remember. It's in the church. It appears to be the real thing, it just never bears fruit. If we wanna know where to begin in judging swine, judging dogs, we need to understand this parable that those who remain in are dogs and swine, not just those on the path. Finally, there's the seed that falls on good ground and it grows up and it produces a, a harvest. And Jesus doesn't say, don't throw your seed in these areas. Jesus doesn't say, don't be careful around the paths. He says, you go and you sow indiscriminately and then God causes the ground to be of a certain type. You don't know what it is, so cast your seed. You don't know how to judge. Your judgments are gonna be wrong. What will be will be proven by the fruit. Jesus says this in this chapter. He says, you will judge according to the fruit. You'll know the false prophets. This is verses 15 and 16, who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You'll know them by their fruits. 
So you don't know until they start growing. This is why you bring the message to everyone. Second, let me, let me add a false conclusion. The first conclusion is that you know who you should witness to and who you shouldn't by the way they live. Imagine how, how many of us would never have been witnessed to if, if others had taken this approach and said, look at him. <laughs> wow. Second, um, don't think that because Jesus warns that there will be consequences for us if we throw our, our pearls to swine and give what is holy to dogs, the, the, the holy things will be trampled under feet and we will be torn to pieces. Don't assume that because there is physical risk involved in carrying the message that we shouldn't do it. The reality is that very often the giving of the gospel will lead to martyrdom. It has throughout the history of the church. Now, we haven't seen this. We've seen lesser pains, lesser consequences, maybe at worst a lost job or a lost girlfriend or a lost boyfriend or something like that. We haven't seen lost lives in America in our lifetime. We have seen Americans, however, people that we may have known go overseas and lose their lives. And it's not in contrary to the command of Jesus here that they go to a, a tribe and end up killed because they're carrying the gospel. Don't think that, that you can avoid physical risk as you carry the gospel. It's simply not what Jesus is saying. Finally, it would be a false conclusion not just to say that we can judge who are the bad people that we shouldn't go to, to not just to say that we, we sh we're going to avoid physical risk, but it would be a false conclusion to say that, that because of this we're going to stay squirreled away in, in the glory of the church and not be out in the world. No, the, the church is established as a city on a hill. It is to shine throughout the whole world. Paul says, you know, stay away from the sinners in the church. I don't at all mean for you to stay away from people in the world, otherwise you'd have to leave the world. But be especially careful not to be around the true dogs who have demonstrated by their taking the gospel of Jesus Christ, claiming it, and yet never bearing fruit that they are indeed the dogs and the swine. Now, I, I, I want to move to a conclusion of, of this practically, but let me say that, um, that there will never be a place that is more full of evident dogs and swine than the church of Jesus Christ. Because in the church, they have heard, if it's a church that preaches the truth, they have heard, they know, and if they don't produce fruit or they produce bad fruit, then it's clear they're dogs and swine and we must separate from them. The church is not to be a home for stray dogs and rooting swine. The church is to understand that it is to be holy, holy to God, holy to the Lord, and judgment begins with the house of God. The scriptures say let judgment begin with the house of God. Let us be certain. Now again, remembering last week that our judgments are often silent, our judgments are not made, shouted from the treetops usually, but let us make certain that when we understand that this person is not producing fruit and yet here every Sunday, it may not be that there's a definable sin that we can discipline this person on the basis of. It's simply a lack of thriving 
never really showing fruit. That we want to avoid those people. We don't live with them as our friends. We don't make their parties the parties we're first to go to. Again, I understand that there's some difficulty in judging and these things aren't clear immediately. But in the end, we have to understand that these are the judgments, the discernments we're supposed to make. Jesus says, make sure you understand in the church who are the false shepherds, the the ravenous wolves. You should understand it about your leaders first of all. Never put a leader in. Never go where the shepherd, the elder, the leader of the church is not bearing real fruit. And don't mistake the fruit of popularity with the fruit that Christ demands. Jesus produced fruit and was a man of scorn and mocking. So I want to close. I want to, I want to say to you that as, as we call you to make judgments, um, Jesus made these judgments. A few, a few weeks, well, actually several months ago, we were in Nazareth, a group of us from the church, and uh, we went to a, a, a little church that may have been the site where Jesus read in the synagogue. It had been built over the site of a synagogue. They don't know if it was the synagogue that Jesus went into and read from Isaiah and then said, today, in your eyes, this prophecy is fulfilled. The people of his town took him out and they said, carried him to the brink of a hill and we're gonna cast him down, but then somehow he walked away by the power of God. Well, we went from that, that church, which may have been over the old synagogue, to the hill that's likely the hill where they were going to cast him down. And you understand that after that, Jesus said, mm, a prophet is without honor in his hometown. And he moved. And there's no recollection in scripture, to the best of my memory, of him ever returning to Nazareth. He went to Capernaum, he moved on. Jesus did what he says. Jesus did it. Later he says to cities where he had done most of his early ministry, most of his miracles had been performed, Chorazin, Bethsaida, Capernaum, he said to them, you know, if, if Sodom had had done in them what I did in you, they would have repented in dust and ashes. But you, do you think you're gonna be lifted to the skies? No, he moved on, he moved on. He moved on from people. When the rich young ruler came to him and said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, obey the law. And he said, I've obeyed the law. Then Jesus said, well, one thing you lack, go and sell all you have and give it to the poor. And the guy said, oh, the Bible says he was very sad because he had great wealth. When that young man went away, Jesus did not follow after him, saying, come back. You misunderstand. Come back, come back. He let him go. When he went on his final trip to Jerusalem and passed through a, near a Samaritan village, they wouldn't let him in. He moved on. Now, striking, his disciples say to him, Master, teacher, do you want us to call down fire from heaven on these people? As though they can judge with the authority and wrath and the conclusive ability of God's judgment. And Jesus says, you don't know what, what father you are, what parentage. No, no. But he made a judgment. He moved on and did not persevere with that group. Paul did this. 
Paul went to Pisidian Antioch. In fact, if you look at the ministry of Paul, it's just filled with these things. He goes to a city and they don't listen, so he moves on. He goes to a city and the Gentiles listen. He begins always, it seems, in a synagogue. But then as so often happens in Pisidian Antioch, one of the first where this happens, but it continues. He goes to the synagogue People respond, we're told that the whole town came out to hear him initially, and then the Jews who were there in the synagogue, the second day that Paul is preaching, they begin to blaspheme and to contradict him and shout. And so Paul says, I'm done. From now on, I'll be with the Gentiles. And he leaves the synagogue. I mean, Paul does this. And in doing this, Paul is actually obeying Jesus because Jesus told his own disciples that when they went out on their missionary journey, if the people of a city would not receive them, they should brush the dust off their feet and move on. And that the judgment of God would be terrible on those cities in the day of judgment. So we see this going on in scripture. It even happens with Paul as he and Barnabas take Timothy with them and Timothy refuses to continue but turns back, evidently a betrayal. Um, because Paul and Barnabas later get in a fight on their second journey, a quarrel over whether to take Timothy, and Paul says no, and Barnabas says yes, and it was so hot that Paul went with Silas, and Barnabas went off with Timothy, and the story of the Bible is then of Paul and Silas. Paul does these judgments. But I want to close with um, three areas uh, in which you and I need to practice the command. Command of these verses, this verse. First, it's important that we do this in the world. We don't begin by judging the world, but at some point we must move on if the world does not respond. I read these stories of, of missionaries who go to countries and spend 30 years and, and never see anyone come to know the Lord. And I wonder, is that true faith? I know this is a question that ultimately I can't answer. But I think we have to ask if we're not producing fruit, if we're really where God wants us to be. And I think many of us spend great deals of time going after people who will not receive what we're giving them. And in the end, if we spend too much time with them, we end up compromised. If we don't cut it off and move on, it actually begins to be an attack on us. If we cannot say, there's nothing here, then we end up staying where there is nothing. And that's, that's deadly. I, I think it's actually, it's, it denigrates, it makes light of the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ to say that we can be in one location and, and declare it faithfully and daily and yet have nothing happen. Well, then we should judge that not many in that town were appointed to life as the, the apostles did in the book of Acts and move on. Because it's not as though the gospel is powerless. Therefore, it must be that, that we're going to a group that 
not many were appointed to eternal life by God. So move on. Move on. I often, I often think about my early years in ministry and think, I should not have done that. I shouldn't have spent 13 years, and honestly, God was in it. I'm not questioning it, but I, I do say that it, it, in the first few years, I think it was perverse pride that kept me in this church where nothing was happening. I'm going to change it. I'm grateful to God that I've spent 30-some years in Toledo now. But God would have been honored if I had said, there is no faith here at some point. Again, there were, there were some fruits that came, but many years later, I, I think many pastors need to ask themselves, am I staying in a place where there is no fruit because it's comfortable? because I don't want to lose my income, because my family doesn't want to change high schools. These should never be the reasons that we stay in a place. We should stay in a place because God's providing fruit. You know, Paul would stay a day in a city and years in a city, and it depended on the fruit. Same with Jesus. He spent years with the disciples who listened to him, and others got dismissed right away. So in the, in the world, it's necessary. We must, we must make these judgments and move on in the church. Oh, I'm, I fear that, that many of us have poisoned our children's lives by refusing to make judgments as their parents. Not that we need to make verbal judgments in the presence of our children. We don't need to do that at all. For instance, when I was growing up, my parents would have a young man from the inner city of Chicago, the Robert Taylor Holmes, come and live with us, young black man. His family was at risk from gangs. The father fought to keep his kids out of the gangs. Anthony, my friend, he'd come and spend the summer with us. He traveled with us. He went to camps with us for years. And it was, it was an entry into a, a different type of life for Anthony, and for us, we were blessed by having him, by knowing him. My parents never sought to keep us away from Anthony, even as he got older and got into drugs and things. They, they didn't. Anthony respected God. He feared God. But we had neighbors in that neighborhood as we were growing up in the 60s who didn't like the fact that we'd have a, a young black man with us for the summer. And they'd mock him. And they'd say things and we'd hear about it. My parents never said, don't play with those kids. Don't play with Tom so-and-so. But I knew that I was not to play with those kids even as I was to play with Anthony. There are, there are dogs and we need by our judgment, by the way we lead our family to make it clear that judgment is necessary and that those who do not fear God, those who are hardened against God, are not our friends. They're a threat. We must judge in the church. Quietly, generally visible only to our children and by what we don't do and who we don't hang with. But let me tell you, the church that doesn't judge and the family that doesn't judge, and the church must do it overtly through discipline, the family that does not judge quietly by 
by where they sit and don't sit, by the parties they do and don't go to, those families and churches are going to die. Finally, this is the hardest area of all, and that's our own families. It's a a tragic thing to see a family where there's life in one branch of the family and the rest is death, but that one branch is not willing to do what Jesus says and say farewell to to the rest. Putting aside father, mother, sister, brother, because they will not follow Jesus. What I've seen over time is that if the family will not make judgments within itself, the family ends up judged by God. It is essential that we say, this is not of God. I'm doing this right now in my larger family. It's a hard thing. It's painful. But it's the glory of Christ. And honestly, if we don't make these judgments then we're saying that we in our kindness are more powerful than Christ in his gospel and his truth. And we're elevating our kindness above the mercy and judgment of God and that is wretched. We must reflect God, not make God look good because we're kinder than him. Not our calling. Now I wanna say in the end, that doing these judgments, making these judgments, is the most hopeful thing of all for the sinner. I'm telling you, the summer I came alive in Christ, I knew what those godly women, the nurses at the hospital up in the mission base I was in, I knew what they thought about me, and I didn't like it. They didn't say it aloud, I could just smell it, and I knew they looked at me and didn't like me. They were kind, but they didn't trust themselves to me. They were right. And what they did caused me to feel shame. I've I've talked often about my father, but I I can't think of a better example of this. My father putting my brother out of his house because he would not obey him. Because he would not heed God in sexual areas. And so my father finally said, this house is going to follow God. You must move out. And my brother says to this day that it was the putting out that changed him. It was the understanding that God is worth so much that my father would give up a son he loved for God. Finally, in our life as a church, we have two men I love in our midst, Sunday after Sunday, who have been put out of our church. And they love God and they are a glory. And they're what I was and you were. But they stand here as, as a great testimony to the truth of this passage that if we judge, God will work. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and for the way that it, that it convicts us and it leads us, Father. And I pray that we as a church will see power many coming to know you as we make the judgments that are righteous that you call us to. I pray, Father, that I may not fall short in old age of making judgments. May I not look for popularity or to be liked a nice grandfather, but may I lead in this. May our young make judgments. May our parents of growing children make judgments, and may you be glorified. 
And may many come to know you because we hold your son up as glorious and powerful and wonderful by the judgments we make and by our preferring him to those who blaspheme. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.